The Tough Love and Second Chances podcast is written and produced by Tony Bennett on behalf of Edgar and reveals remarkable stories of those who refuse to be defined by their disability. The power of the human spirit shines through with examples of how hope, courage, and the opportunity to express oneself through the game of golf makes for a combination that can improve and even save lives. I first met Carol Brill in 2018 during an Edgar event in Portugal. In this far-reaching conversation, Carol explains how she would often find her mum crying at the kitchen sink and how her dad had been a wonderful educator to her throughout her life. The words of her father, you never focus on the problem, you always focus on the solution, are never far away from her consciousness. And they are aptly followed by, if there is no solution, then find it. Please enjoy my conversation with Carol Brill. Great. Well, Carol, it's fantastic to be with you today. And where have I found you? You're at home for sure, but whereabouts? where is home? I'm just in the uh, leafy suburbs of southern Dublin with the uh, Dublin mountains, or some people call them hills. The Dublin mountains here is the backdrop from this bedroom window. And, and on the side of that mountain is my golf club, Stacktown Golf Club. So I'm, I'm calling to you from Ireland. So, Carol, did you start to play golf from an early age? Not at all. I'm only about five years playing, would you believe? Um, and it was purely by accident because I grew up hating golf. I hated, absolutely, I even hated the word golf. And I think it was probably because my father absolutely hated golf. And he said, I'm not retiring. I don't play golf. He just figured retirement equals golf. And uh, bless him, he passed away before he even got to retire. So, um, and I suppose part of that with his early passing, um, you know, that kind of compounded my my hatred for, for golf. But then um, my daughter came into my life and, and she started going to school for longer hours. And I thought, well, it's now time to... To, to stop thinking about a little four-year-old and start, you know, having some interesting conversation with people rather than just being talking about my little girl. And uh, I started to do some research about what sports I could do as as um, with my disability. So up came hill walking, I've done that. Up came cycling, I've done that. And uh, tennis didn't uh, sound right to me because... I am hearing impaired, so I wouldn't have been able to hear the bell in the tennis ball. And then um, I saw golf and I thought, well, well look, I'll, I'll have a look at it because, you know, I'm I'm always advocating uh, for the uh, people um, in the visually impaired and also in the deafblind community. And I thought, I'll research this anyway, just so I can pass on the information. And I saw that there was a, a golf clinic just up the road. And I thought, well, I'll go along. And <laughs> and there was all these lads practicing in the in the bay. And uh, the pro in, in the Leopardstown golf range, he was giving them uh, lessons. And um, as I'm asking the lads, you know, are there any girls? And they said no. And I thought, right, well, we're going to have to sort that one out. So that was kind of my primary reason to get involved because, you know, there was no woman and I thought, right, let's sort this out. 
So, um, and then that was it. I was, I was, uh, went to the clinics afterwards and all I was doing was just doing chipping shots, you know, a hundred chipping shots per session, but my God, I loved it. And I think, you know, it was at, it couldn't have come at a better time because, um, it was, you, you, it's sort of like a, a physical meditation. You're, you're standing there and you're, you're checking your balance, you're checking your posture, you're checking your head. So you, you're, you're developing this self-awareness because sometimes I, I, do forget about you know I'm inside a body as I'm running around the house trying to do all the housework and the school school work and and all of this all my my normal daily responsibilities you forget where, where you are who you are what you are and um what I loved about you know just standing there on the golf mat and you're just coming into an awareness of yourself you know and and it was relaxing and you just forgot about everything. All you're doing was focusing on your swing, focusing on the ball. Not that I see all of the ball, but you just you had something to focus on that you just forgot who you were or who you are, what you are, wherever you are. So this seems to me like you've gone from poacher to gamekeeper, from a hater to a lover of the sport. Is that correct? More like an addict. <laughs> <laughs> I, I honestly I am um, I had surgery about had surgery about four years ago and I had uh, 37 staples so um unfortunately I had I'd, I'd got some surgical infection so every time a staple came out they had to syringe me to, to get out all the bad fluid sorry to any of the delicate stomachs listening but I was like hyperventilating and the surgeon just said just focus on something that makes you calm. So all I kept doing was pretending I was on tea box and, you know, getting ready to tee off. And that's how I dealt with each staple and every syringe going inside. Um, that's how I got through that horrific experience. But, yeah, it's <laughs> addict is more the, the, the appropriate word. And tell me a little bit about your impairments, if you would do. So I know we spoke earlier and you said that it's Usher syndrome. So if you could explain a little bit about that, that would be great. But also, how did you find out about that for yourself? And how has it affected you as you've gone through your earlier childhood and then getting to where you are today? Okay, well, um, when I was young, my mum noticed I wasn't speaking properly. I would say Bordeaux for bread. And, um, you know, she, she kind of felt that I was having some sort of speech difficulty. Then I was assessed and it was discovered I had a hearing loss. So I got uh, hearing aids and um, there was no speaking language therapies in those days. My mum was just brilliant. She actually taught me how to speak properly. She was really fantastic. Um she still corrects me to this day. <laughs> but um, yeah, and then uh, when I was around 10, 11, no, 10, I started to have difficulty when I'd be out playing outside with my friends and then I'd come into the house and I'd sit on the bottom step of the stairs because it would take ages for my eyes to adjust to different lighting levels. And um, and then I, I couldn't see at night time. So uh, my parents actually took me to London and on my 11th birthday I remember it very well um I had all these tests in the Ormond Street hospital and um 
and then my parents were given the news uh, that I was going to go blind. Um, they they diagnosed my condition as being retinitis pigmentosa. So my parents been uh, they just decided not to tell me about my sight difficulties. Um, they didn't ex- tell me about my diagnosis. And um, they decided that I would only know when there's a cure or treatment. And so they became very involved with um, the organization in the earlier days. It was called RP Ireland, Biting Blindness. And um, I'm now a director of that charity now. It's called Fighting Blindness. I was also in the history, the only female and the youngest ever chairperson of that charity. But just to come back, um, they didn't tell me. And during my teenage years, they would encourage me to play tennis quite disastrously. Um, I would play rounders quite disastrously. You know, for some reason, they just kept pushing me towards ball sports. And it really just wasn't working out. And then, you know, my teenage years were tough because, you know, kids take, you know, they take on at you when with hearing aids so it was bad enough with the hearing aids and so um I always felt clumsy as well I would always have lots of accidents but I just thought I was clumsy because I I wore glasses I was short-sighted and um so when I was 21 I wasn't very well and it was just at that time I actually I was having terrible migraines and it was down to the eye strain so um, that's when I found out that I, I was told I had RP and I was going to go blind. So my dad has been, you know, a wonderful educator to me through my life. Um, still is, even though he's he's gone a few years. Um, I He always says, you never focus on the problem. You always focus on the solution. And if there's no solution, find it. You know, and, and if there's no, you know, create a solution. That, that was the, the, the my attitude to life. And I actually was just teaching my daughter that the other week. Um, it's, it's a very valuable lesson that can be applied to everything. And um, so I threw myself into researching all about retinitis pigmentosa. Um, and then I just, just started coming across a condition called Usher syndrome, which is a form of retinitis pigmentosa. And Usher syndrome, um, the visual loss is down to retinitis pigmentosa. Start again. The vision loss is called retinitis pigmentosa, where it means that the cells in the back of your retina are dying, and there's no cure or treatment for that right now at the moment. And the hearing loss, for me, I've got a moderate to severe hearing loss. I wear hearing aids, as I've, I've worn since the age of four. Um, um, there are other people who have Usher syndrome, which would mean that they were born profoundly deaf uh, and and then started to lose their vision in their late teens. And then um, you have other people who would have Usher syndrome uh, later on in life, in their 30s and 40s. And, and with that, they also have balance loss issues. So I always consider myself blessed that I can still hear. Um, people nagging me. <laughs> um, I can, um, you know, I, I always count my blessings. I am lucky. Um, I don't suffer any daily pain, uh, only just the pain of walking into something or falling 
that's that's the only pain I have with this disease. And um, I think, um, you know, th- at the moment, there's there's a lot of excitement in the research world and there's a lot of promise. Um, and hopefully I'll still be sort of young enough. And I always say young enough uh, to 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 benefit from the treatment then. Um, but part of me would say um, I, I I would worry then does that if you know if I did get cured I'd be knocked out of the world of disability golf. <laughs> Isn't that weird? <laughs> so can you paint me some kind of picture of what you actually see on a day to day basis when you go and play golf? Okay, well when I'm let's put it this way when I'm standing if if I'm just standing three feet from a person I will only just see their eye I mightn't see all of their eye or I wouldn't see their eyebrow or the the end of their nose I'm I'm looking through a very tiny tiny hole I, I mean everyone has about 180 degrees of field of vision so you can see your hands to the side and up down or whatever I don't I just have a really tiny peephole um so when I'm you know addressing the ball on the tee box um, you know, my guide uh, would put down the, you know, the the club to, to kind of line me up. Um, and she's already teed up the ball, but I won't have seen the ball. I, I'm just, try- I don't even see all of the club. I'm just, I, I, I scan the club so that I can adjust my position to, to stand. Um, and then I focus on the ball. I wouldn't see the complete, I wouldn't see the perimeter of the ball. I'll just see a white blob. Um, and I don't see the club beside it. So obviously I've got to go over to the club, make sure, you know, I'm looking at the direction of, of what where my, my guide has set me up. And I just know I've got to swing in that direction and hope I swing in that direction and then come back to the ball and just stay on the ball. But I don't see the, the club coming away or coming back down. I don't even see impact. I can't see things at fast velocity. Um, like I, you know, um, even if you if, like in normal everyday situations, if I'm if I'm going to cross a road, I mightn't see a cyclist coming up, you know, an a, an average speed. And needless to say, I've 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 had a you know a few near misses. So if if you can imagine trying to look through a tiny tiny peephole and just get get um a, a, a biro would be actually too big a hole. If you can get a really sharpened pencil, put a hole into the page and try looking through that page and you'll get an idea of what I see. So my guess is that you'd be very reliant on on your guide. You have to know the guide and the guide has to know you and the guide has to know what you see and don't see because I'll just say when we're coming up to the ball especially on the fairways I'll say where's the ball and, and if you know it has happened a guide you know who's no longer no longer um like you know I've, I've I've had to go work with some people. Um, and I, I get, if a guide says it's over there, well, <laughs> you might swell look in the Atlantic Ocean because over there is not. like. And and so you develop a system. And I have this fantastic guide, um, Teresa, who, who just knows. I, I don't have to say, where is it? She'll just say, right, it's up here. And she brings me up and she'll put the club down. And then I know that somewhere along that club is the ball. So I don't even have to ask because a lot of energy and a lot of anxiety goes into that. Where is the ball? And if they say, if somebody who, isn't, who doesn't know your condition, doesn't know what you see, 
as I say, well, you know, you, you're, it, it's not good for my mental game. I, I don't need that kind of anxiety. Um, you know, I, I, when I play golf, I completely forget my disability because we have a, you know, Teresa and I have this fabulous system in place that it never makes me feel that I have a hearing or sight loss. The only time I, it hits me, so to speak, <laughs> I'm going to say, is when my caddy shouts or, or because some, some ball is heading towards us. Actually, we, we had a really bad uh, uh, experience last week. These guys just hit the ball, uh, didn't shout for, and the ball was heading towards us. And so much so that my guide, uh, Teresa, was roaring for. So I was just going like this, you know, I don't know where it's coming from or whatever. So um, that's the time that the disability comes into play because I completely forget about my, you know, my disabilities um, when I'm playing golf. So you mentioned earlier that your parents had decided they weren't going to tell you until there was a cure. So they got that news. And I guess you've spoken to your parents about this. Your mother said that they'd figured out even at a very early age there were some problems with your hearing. Then they found out when you were 11 there were some problems with your sight. And it's clear they had a very positive viewpoint on how they were going to deal with this and how it was going to affect your life. But what did they actually feel for themselves? Did you ever have that conversation with them? That's a difficult question to answer because all I know is during my teenage years, um, you know, uh, my my mother would be always crying at the sink and crying, peeling the potatoes. And, you know, uh, I would say, are you okay? And she would say, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine. It's just the music on the radio. It's just... Uh, and, you know, she'd make up excuses and it never, never came out. And I actually found out about my condition, about my, you know, my retinitis pigmentosa diagnosis um, when I was 21 through my GP because he felt, you know, I needed to know. I was age 21. I was making life choices, career choices. And so when I told my parents, they were just devastated because they really they and I can understand it because it was in a time that there was no internet there was no there was no connections with the outside world or whatever it was a disease very rarely heard of and um so my dad was very proactive with fundraising and everything for research but um I suppose um the conversations that we had would have been about okay well what research has been done uh, okay, how much do you want? Because I was going off to do a parachute jump. I did fundraising cycles in mm-hmm. Australia and Florida because, you know, that's how we are as a family. We just look for the solution. You know, that that's how dads, you know, handle things. And we always look to the man of the house. And and and, and that's what I do now. And and so consequently, I've, I've, you know, my mother and my sister would say, well, what do we do now? And I say, well, well, leave it with me. I'll, I'll find it, you know. I'll find the solution. We'll, let's, we'll, we'll deal with it, you know, rather than just focus on the problem. So um, the conversations, I suppose, would have been very emotional. And they just said, well, all we wanted was a cure for you. And we didn't tell you because we wanted you to enjoy life. We knew you were having a hard time with your hearing aids. Um, 
and we just we just we just didn't want you to have that worry so um they wanted me to make normal decisions like everyone else does you know if i wanted to be an accountant uh which kind of shocked them (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i am not an accountant i did accountancy studies i enjoyed it but um i'm 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 not an accountant by any means but i tell you what it, it gives you certain skills in managing your finances throughout life anyway um and i suppose i never really knew what i wanted because you know at the age of 21 my life is turned upside down and so my career choices completely went out the window um so um do I have a career now no um but I do have a passion and I do a lot of advocacy work for visually impaired and deafblind people I'm very much involved with charities right now um and uh you know, last week I did a summer school all about patient advocacy in the the worlds of medicines and clinical medical trials. So, yeah, I'm, you know, still finding that solution, working on it. Tell me a little bit about that charity because you're, you've been the chair. Are you still the chair? No, no, that was quite a few years ago. Um, I had taken a hiatus, a hiatus. Um, I had taken a break. And um, so last week, uh, last year, I I was co-opted back onto the board of Fighting Blindness, and um, and then also just in two years ago, no, not two years ago. Well, in, yeah, at the end of two thousand and eighteen, myself um, and two other friends with Usher Syndrome set up a charity in the UK uh, called Cure Usher. And we've just funded our first, um, we've just given our first instalment to a very exciting uh, research study going on in, in Usher syndrome over in the Netherlands. So um, that's uh, another one. Um, what else am I involved in? I, I'm also on the advocacy support group for um, the Anne Sullivan Foundation, which is the National Association for Deafblind People in Ireland. And then also, um, naturally, keeping all my passions in, in uh, you know, in my work, um, I'm involved with, I'm on the disability, disability advisory panel for Confederation of Golf in Ireland. And I, I'm, I'm really, really excited about disability golf in Ireland as well. And I'm, I'm glad that I can, you know, have an input into shaping uh, disability golf in Ireland. So tell me a little bit about your entry into golf. You know, I think with everything I've I've gone through in life, people, when they don't know about a condition, they have a fear of it. And and I, I never say ignorance. Uh, I just they have a lack of awareness. And um, I was frightened to, to apply for Stackstown. I'll, I'll be very honest about that because I was worried that I wouldn't, you know, I would be seen as a liability um, that I could, you know, be shooting golf balls through their car windows and, and stuff like that. <laughs> so, um, but I have to say how wrong I was, how wrong, because um, the the best way for entry into that golf club, I, I went into their Get Into Golf uh, scheme, which is a fantastic uh, uh, program um, created by uh, Confederation of Golf in Ireland. And this get into golf scheme means you go along, you have some sessions with the pro along with 10 or 20 other women, 
and then um the the lady members of the club will start walking with you and you play three holes and then five holes and then nine holes and then 18 holes so it's it's a four state a four-year program and and you know as each as you go into the next year your membership benefits improve and then you come into your you know when you get in it starts off with sigs which is starting into golf then um no gigs sorry i beg your pardon gigs um which is getting into golf then it's sigs which is your second second year into golf and then twigs which is a two-year part of your membership um is transitioning women into golf and um and then you start being able to get into the ladies competitions it's a fantastic program because you're not um if you're if you're learning golf and you you're not getting you're not going to get the full benefit of having a you know a full membership of a golf club in your first couple of years of golf unless you're practicing every day so it's a fantastic program and um so that's how i entered into to Stackstown. the ladies committee could not have done more they created a whatsapp group and we called it the Girl Guides. And I can just go into the Girl Guide chat room or chat uh, message and say, girls, I'd like to go out next week. Is there anyone to walk with me? Um, because my guide, she's also a member there, but she likes to play her game too. And um, and it's also a way of, you know, I I when I go out with one of the ladies from the Girl Guides, if it's their first time, I see that more about teaching them how to guide rather than me getting out and playing for golf. It is a two-way, you know, two-way process. I don't see it as, you know, me playing golf all the time because I'm trying to spread awareness and I want to enable more people um, to play golf. It's fantastic to hear that. And I think many people with an impairment find that entering into a golf club sometimes can be a little bit daunting. I'm, I'm very proud of Stackton Golf because they've just been so accommodating and so supportive and uh, they've, they've just recently you know that they've, they've now yeah, well, I, not because of me but they, they've now they now promote themselves as a community uh, based golf club because originally the history of Stackstown was more for um, Gardashi Corner which were our, our police force it was a you know, yeah. police force um, golf course but they are a community-based uh, golf club, and they've just installed a wheelchair lift, and they've um, they're just put, putting the finishing touches to a new wheelchair ramp, accessible ramp. Um, and you know, there's there's going to be major uh, work done, I say, and and you know, wheelchair golfers are are going to be playing on the side of the mountain, pretty soon. Mm-hmm. You know, such as their enthusiasm and their determination to make golf accessible for all. So now with your experience, Carol, what two or three things would you change to make golf even more accessible? You know, um, sometimes with the best intentions of the world, uh, classifications can create exclusions. Um, I'm not going to go into much more detail um, about that, but I think golf is is for everyone um, if they enjoy it. Obviously, <laughs> they've got to enjoy it. Um, you know, golf is about your ability to play. 
it's not about whether you have a limb missing or you've got a bad eye or you've got any it's not about a disability it's more about your ability to play golf bottom line you don't need to have like i mean i'm playing with very very reduced vision i have severe to you know severe hearing loss and i i don't i play by feel so you can play golf in any way you choose to um how do i elaborate that i play by feel you know i don't think about um the ball speed i don't think about the club speed i just think about how i move my body through the swing in order to try and hit the ball straight is <laughs> <laughs> it's all about the movement in your body it's you can't blame the club you can't blame oh the ball's got a crack in it so although i have produced balls with cracks in it and i didn't know <laughs> <laughs> now I've started feeling the balls, you know, before I, I, I put them in my pocket to play with. Um, <laughs> and you wonder, how do I end up with crack balls in my bag? But, yeah, I get a few fines along the way and I just throw them in the bag and I never think to examine them afterwards. But anyway, <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it's about like when you're standing there, you're, you're positioning your balance, you're you're relaxing into your swing and you're just closing your mind and then you just go through the motions of bringing your arms back and your swing through, making sure your downswing is going the right way, making sure you're releasing your hand. It's all in your hand movement. It, it, it's, it's a whole body movement. It's not about hitting the ball. It's, it's a how you move your body or don't move your body, <laughs> as in don't move your head or whatever. Um, it's how you just hold your body to the swing. That's how you execute it. I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> it's a fascinating answer, Carol, because unfortunately the listeners will not be able to see you moving your arms, but I can see it now. And as you were explaining, you could see your arms moving, you could sense the motion in the swing, you could see that you were very much inside of your body and feeling the movement. Based on that, I'd like to go back to your process. So you're on the tee, you're going to play a shot. What do you actually see, Carol? We tend to go for shapes and skyline. You'll say you see a tall, skinny tree. You know, I could see, you know, probably shapes of trees against the horizon. She'll say, you see a skinny point or do you see a power uh, um what do you call them? Power towers. A mast. Yeah. A mast. Yes, she said, go for it. There's loads of bone masts on the top of that mountain over there. If only you could see it, Tony, from here. It's just, you know, and I can imagine myself on the fifth hole or the eighth hole, and I can see those aerials. Um, but um, we, we go for a shape on the skyline. Um, or, like, it could be the cottage, which is a white, there's this old white cottage on, on hole number three. Um, it's actually featured in some yogurt ads, ads I believe. Um, and, I, and sometimes you see it in a shot with Porrick Harrington uh, as well, because it's, it's quite a beautiful, uh, it's, it's a beautiful hole. Um, but I can see the white cottage on the right and I'm to aim for that, you know. So, yeah, you, you become aware of your, of your um, 
your environment um, rather than the green. Um, and, and Theresa never says, you know, um, look at the bunkers on the right or whatever, um, unless she felt I could really see the bunker. Um, right. But it'd be more about the landmarks on, on the horizon. Um, okay. And, and that would be it. But I, I would never look at the green. I'm, I'm just looking at a point on the environment, uh, on the, the horizon to hit towards. And so would, you, would she give you a distance as well? Um, we tend to look at it, but that means I only look at the distance for uh, club selection. Correct, yeah. That's really it. Yeah. Um, and she'll say, well, yeah, it might be 110 to the pin, but she says, we're going to have to lay up. And I don't ask her why, because if she tells me there's water, nine times out of ten, I'm in the water. <laughs> I take you to three places. Four you may not remember very well, because that's when you said you started to wear your hearing aids. Yeah. Eleven you will remember that you went for those tests. Yeah. And there was no real result from those tests, as far as you were concerned, is that, yes, you've had the test, but no real result. But then at 21, there's definitely a result. You've now got uh, you've now got a diagnosis. You've now got an understanding of what you have and what's in front of you. So what was going through your mind, if you can remember at 11, um, but certainly what was going through your mind when you were 21, in that first hour or so, after you've been given the diagnosis? When I was 11, all I remember about that day was we went from the hospital. It glued electrodes in my hair, so I'd glue in my hair. Um, but because it was my birthday, my parents took me to John Lewis, and I got this really cool nighty, and I wore it in the hotel that night. But that's what I remember about that day, but my parents would have remembered and how they how they were just so brave because we're all in the same hotel room and how they hid their pain, I, I'll never know. Um, so I'm, I'm in huge awe of them, even to this day. Um, when I was 21, I didn't handle it well in the beginning. Um, I did resort to alcohol for a couple of months. And then this morning I woke up and I... I just thought, I can't hurt myself anymore. This isn't the right thing to do. I'm going to find a cure for myself. And that's what I've been doing ever since that day. I've been fundraising for research. And, and now as I, I you know, have a, a level of maturity, <laughs> <laughs> which comes with a certain age, with, you know, a certain milestone, you know, uh, what I'm learning now I just wish I knew a few years ago, but at least, you know, I now know it and and that's the path I'm going on for the moment until, you know, just to make so what it happen. So what advice would you give to somebody? So what advice would you give to a 21-year-old person who gets that diagnosis and probably is a little bit shocked, probably doesn't quite understand exactly what's hit him or her? What advice would you give to that person based on your experience? You have every good reason to have a hope for a cure or a treatment in your lifetime. 
because I'm working for it. Um, even I hope that I'll get a treatment at some point in, you know, in the future. Um, you know, at the time that I found out, and even the 10 years previous when my parents found out, that couldn't have been a worse time to find out because there was no very little research going on. If that, in fact, no research going on for Usher syndrome. There was no genetic testing. I only got genetically tested four years ago. So, I, you know, I, I was, you know, doctor said I had Usher syndrome when I was 21, but no genetic confirmation of it. And, you know, this is a better time to find out of your diagnosis. OK, yeah, it's a horrible time to find out what's happening, but you're finding it out at a better time. And, um, you know, life doesn't stop. If anything, it was life changing for me because before I was 21, uh, finding out that I was just, you know, I was lazy. Um, you know, I, I just didn't know what I wanted out of life. and. When you have something as as devastating as being told you're going to lose your sight and your hearing, it makes you more determined to live life to the full. And as long as you're breathing, you're alive. So live it. Live every breath. Not just breathe it. Just live it. And and there's so much you can do. You know, golf is is the absolute proof of that. Well, Carol, it's been absolutely fascinating chatting to you. I've really enjoyed it. I've really learnt a lot as well, which is always a good thing. I thank you for reminding um, me because sometimes I do be forgetting and, you know, it just kind of reaffirms to myself is to live every moment. Yeah, I'm I'm going to live every moment as, as best as I can. No matter how tired I am, I will just get out there and live life because, um, you know, things are on a better uh, things are better right now in terms of research. There's a lot of hope. So you'd want to be worrying about not being able to play disabled golf when you get your treatment. <laughs> so Thanks again, Carol. Most appreciated. All right, Tony. Thank you for having me on, on the podcast. This was an Edgar Player story, supported by Ping, helping golfers to play their best. For more information about Edgar, please visit edgargolf.com. Stay tuned for the next Tough Love and Second Chances podcast. Ping. Play your best.